morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Faith, whether you're joining us in person, whether you're joining us online. We're glad to have you here with us today. Uh, we are wrapping up a series uh, today called Truth Versus Love. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, I just want to invite you to take a minute and pray with me, please. Uh, Father, there's just so much that is going on. Um, right here among us, there are so many needs. This morning, I want to take a minute and just pray uh, for Cheryl and uh, the Hayford family as she's got news that cancer uh, has uh, now entered into her hip and is going to begin treatment for that. God, I pray that you would have your hand of healing on her body, that she would tolerate the treatment well, that you would give a sense of strength and courage in your presence to her and Rick and their family. Uh, Father, just for the craziness that's going on in our world today, we want to just um, especially lift up uh, folks in Beirut. And as they're just reeling still from the uh, impact of this explosion and the loss of life and thousands who have been hurt and uh, just hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless now as a result of this, all the political and social unrest there in the midst of that. God, please have your hands on them. And in the midst of all the crazy, Father, thank you for life. Father, thank you for uh, Tim and for Hannah, uh, Widerco, and just the birth of baby Ezekiel. And uh, in the midst of all that is broken, in the midst of all the pain, there is hope and there is new life. We just pray you would protect that child, that you would draw him to you, that you would bless their home and their family. Help us, please, as uh, we just look at Jesus today. Help us to see and hear love and truth from him for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so again, we're, we're wrapping up a series today called Truth Versus Love. And if you haven't been with us or if you've been ignoring me for the last three weeks, we're going to just kind of get you all caught up. Uh, in this series, we're, we're simply acknowledging that the world we live in is a pretty polarized kind of place. And if ever there were times where that was true, we are living in those times right now. But this is very much a, an either or, a this versus that, a one versus the other kind of world that we live in. And it's really easy for us to, to allow that polarized thinking to creep into how we approach the concepts of truth and love. We tend to think in our lives and in our relationships, either I'm going to be truthful with somebody or I'm going to be loving towards somebody. But in the first week of the series, we heard from one of Jesus' very first followers, a guy named John, who said to us, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. And part of what John is trying to communicate to us that it's not supposed to be you know, love versus truth, it's supposed to be truth and love for us. But we struggle with this because we all have a natural bent one way or the other. Some of us just tend to be loving kind of people. It's just where we go, it's just how we're wired. And as we interact with people, we, we, we just long to communicate to them, hey, I accept you. It's going to be okay. 
You can be forgiven. I'm in your corner no matter what. But others of us, we, we tend to be truth people. It's just, again, it's how we're wired. It's how we interact. It's how we see the world. And as we communicate with other people, we just naturally will say to them things like, hey, this is broken in your life. You got to work on this. You're accountable. There, there are consequences to your decisions. And oftentimes we, we tend to lean into one at the expense of the other. And in this series, we've been seeing that it, doing so doesn't work. When I lean into love at the expense of truth, I actually fail to be loving. Because love without truth is powerless. It's powerless to save a person from the destruction that sin will bring to bear on their lives. And when, when I lean into love at the expense of truth, I'm actually party in someone's destruction. And there's nothing loving about that. At the same time, though, we, we've seen that truth without love is just as powerless. It's powerless to help a person who's lost their way find it back home again. When I blast somebody with truth at the expense of love, I, I don't help them find redemption. I simply shatter their spirit. And there's nothing loving about that. And there's, not, and there's nothing that's going to cause that person to embrace truth. It actually drives them towards error. And so last week, as we kind of wrap things up, we said the temptation for us is to think, well, okay, then I'm going to learn to balance truth and love in my life. And we said that that's not the right, the right way to go. The, the, the question we should be asking isn't how do I balance truth and love, but how do I live fully into both truth and love? Because again, in the, in the first week of the series, John pointed us to Jesus and told us that Jesus was full, right up to the top, of both truth and love. And Jesus invites those of us who are following him to be full, not to balance, but to be full of both truth and love. But while you can find all kinds of examples in the New Testament of Jesus living fully into truth and love, it's a struggle to do this. It's, it's a messy thing to do this. When you, when, you, when you read the New Testament, you watch Jesus living fully into both love and truth. At times, it will seem confusing. At times, it will seem unfair. At times, it will seem inconsistent. It, it's just a messy thing. And there's all kinds of tension that comes with this. And yet Jesus does this, and Jesus invites us into this. And so uh, up until now, we've kind of talked kind of abstractly about what it looks like to live into truth and love fully. Today, we're going to try and get a little bit more concrete. But I have to warn you, I'm not going to give you this nice, neat, clean package, you know, that, that where you just do these three things and everything's going to work out just fine. This, this is difficult, messy kind of stuff that we're going to wade into that Jesus invites us into but he invites us still the same. Now again, all kinds of examples of Jesus doing this. We've got time for one. So today we're going we're to look at a passage in John chapter 4 where Jesus has an interaction with a woman. And, and Jesus, we, we basically find Jesus sitting by a well. His disciples have gone off. They're, they're getting lunch. And this woman comes to this well. And, and John tells us that she's a Samaritan woman. 
that a Samaritan woman came to draw water and that Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, nobody here in the room gasped. Probably nobody at home fell off of the couch. All right. But what we just read here, for, for Jesus' audience, for anybody who would have witnessed this, for anybody who was familiar with the history or the culture, this is scandalous, what we just read. See, at this point in time in history, th this is a huge scandal. And you pick up on some of that in the woman's response to Jesus. Because she turns around and she looks at Jesus and she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John gives us his parenthetical note. He says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, at, at this point in history, in this time and age when this is taking place, there's just hundreds of years of bad blood, of conflict between these two races of people to the point where they just naturally could not stand one another. All goes back to about 6-700 BC. You have, you have the Jews who are living in Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians come in, they take over Israel, and the way they dealt with uh, the areas that they conquered is where they, they, would, they would take the people who lived there, they would deport them out of their homeland and put them somewhere else in other areas that were conquered. And so the, the Babylonians, the, the um, Assyrians, they do this to the Jews, but they leave behind a small remnant of Jewish people, the poorest of the Jews. And then they import into Israel foreigners from other areas of the known world that they have conquered. And these Jews and these foreigners, they intermarry, and the Jews kind of accept some of the religious practices of these foreigners. They, they, they mix them in with their Judaism, and they all settle in a land, part of Israel known as Samaria, and they become the Samaritans. Now, generations later, you have Jews returning from exile, and, and they're coming back to Israel to rebuild the temple, to, to rebuild the city. And the ethnically and religiously pure Jews, they're not down with the Samaritans. They're trying to build the temple, and the Samaritans are like, hey, the God of the Old Testament, that's our God too. We want to be part of this. And again, the ethnically, the religiously pure Jews, they want nothing to do with those half-breeds. They tell them, uh-uh, you can't have any part of our temple you can't have any part of our revival and the Samaritans they felt that fully they felt the sting they felt the rejection and they responded in a number of ways they use political force and violence to try and stop the rebuilding of the temple when that doesn't work they literally build their own temple in Samaria and they tell anybody in the known world who will listen, listen, if you're going to worship the God of the Old Testament, you need to do this here in Samaria, not in, the, in that phony temple in Jerusalem. They take the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and they edit it. Wherever, they, wherever you came across a spot where it said that the Israelites are God's chosen people, they take that out and they insert the Samaritans. You can still find it. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And then... They, around 170 BC, when, when Antiochus has taken over Israel and he is just murdering anybody who claims any kind of allegiance to the God of the Old Testament, the Samaritans completely renounce their faith. 
They rededicate their temple in Samaria to Jupiter, and they just stand by and watch as Jews are slaughtered by Antiochus. Now, this is the history. So by the time you get to Jesus, Jews in Jesus' day thought of Samaritans as individuals who tried to steal their God and their place as God's people and their, their scriptures, and who when the going got tough, they just took off. Any good Jew in Jesus' day would see a Samaritan and think of them as a thieving, you know, opportunistic, religious usurping half-breed who you didn't have anything to do with. Good Jews did not acknowledge a Samaritan's presence. They did not speak to them, and they certainly wouldn't do something as intimate as sharing a meal and dishes with them. And so this woman comes to the well, and Jesus, he... he he interacts with the Samaritan and, and he increases the scandal more by interacting with a Samaritan woman. Because, again, Jewish men in Jesus' day, they did not speak to women in public unless it was their spouse. To do so was beneath them. But Jesus, he, he violates all of these customs, all of the culture. He acknowledges this woman's presence. He speaks to her. He asks her to give him a drink out of her dishes. In this day and age, this is unheard of. But it communicates some very clear things to this woman. He's letting her know, hey, I value you as a person. I want to extend the honor that you deserve as another human being. I want to respect you as an individual. All things that this Samaritan woman never would have expected from a Jewish man. And then, if that's not enough, Jesus begins to engage this woman in conversation, in a significant conversation that good religious people don't have with, with a woman like this. And we're going to see in a few minutes why good religious people don't interact with women like this Samaritan woman. Jesus says to her, hey, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who asks you for a drink, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. Jesus says to her, listen, if you really understood God, if you had any idea who you were talking to, you'd have asked me for a drink, because I can give you what your soul is thirsty for. Now, initially, the woman doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And I, I would argue, in part, that's Jesus' fault. Because Jesus does this all the time. Rather than just come right out and say what he means, in plain, simple, direct language, Jesus gets all artistic and all abstract, and, and pe people have no idea what he's talking about. You know? And if you're a concrete person, Jesus will make you nuts with this kind of stuff, and he does it all the time. And it's like John really enjoyed it. If Jesus was going to be abstract, John's sitting there writing it down, right? And so he does it here, and the woman doesn't get it. She, 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 she just goes concrete in her thinking. She picks up on the idea that there's something spiritual taking place, but she really doesn't understand. And so she's like, listen, I don't know, I don't know how you think you're going to get water, pal. Like, unless you've got go-go gadget arms or Elastigirl kind of reach, the well's deep. You've got nothing to draw with. Where, where are you going to get this water? 
And then she goes back to the same old debate, the same old narrative she's used to using with those people. Okay, which, which one of us is really the chosen race? Which, which one of us really has a monopoly on God? Which, which one of us, which, which one of us is really, are, are really God's people? You, you got nothing to draw with. The water's deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from him and, and he drank from him himself as did his sons and his livestock? Now here's the thing. Historically speaking, Biblically speaking, our woman is on the wrong side of the argument. And nobody knows that better than Jesus does. And still, she, she throws the same old worn out bad argument at Jesus. Still, she behaves towards Jesus in a way that just validates all of the, the stereotypes that Samaritans and, you know, would, would be thought of in her day by Jewish people. And yet, Jesus comes back at her with this. He says, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says to her, hey, you, you, you can chase the stuff of this world. You can get as much of it as you can get your hands on. You can come back again and again and again. But it's never going to satisfy your soul. If, if you come to me, I can give you what you've been chasing your whole life. I can give you what your soul is thirsty for. I can give you what you've been looking for so long and so hard and just haven't been able to put your hands on. And finally, this woman gets it. She, she finally begins to pick up what Jesus is putting down because her soul has been hungry for this. She has been desperately searching for this. And she says to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw. Jesus, give me this thing you're talking about so I can quit going back to these same old places that leave me unsatisfied again and again and again. See, here's this woman who no one would have expected a Jewish man to acknowledge or speak to or show this kind of respect and honor and consideration. And yet Jesus does all of those things. And then as the conversation unfolds, Jesus begins to talk to her more about who God is and, 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 and this Jewish-Samaritan religious debate and what it looks like to really have the kind of life that he offers. He talks to her about the, the most important things in life. And as Jesus does, Jesus loves her fully. Jesus communicates to this woman, I accept you just like you are. This, this can be all right. 
There's forgiveness. I am in your corner no matter what. And then, in the same conversation, with the same woman, when she's most receptive to spiritual truth, Jesus takes a conversation here. He says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, in case you missed it, there's a little bit of a zinger there on Jesus' part, right? He's like, honey, you, go get your husband. Well, I haven't got one. That's, yeah, you're right, you haven't got one. You've been married and divorced five times over, and the guy you're living with now, you're not even married to. Jesus has just reached into the deepest, darkest, most painful, shameful part of this woman's life and just pulled it all right out into the open. He's basically saying, look, we got to deal with this this relationship thing because this is broken. This, This is making your life dysfunctional. This isn't working. Listen, Even Samaritans know you don't do it this way. Dear, you've got a bad picker. You're no good at relationships. This man thing, you're no good at this. Now we hear this from Jesus and there's something inside of us that's tempted to go, whoa, Jesus, pump the brakes. Jesus, you've clearly not had any sensitivity training. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we, we, don't, we don't bring these kind of things up from people's lives. You don't reach into the deepest, darkest, most shameful, painful part of a person's life and just put it all out there like that. But Jesus does. He, 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 he just takes where this woman is deeply broken and he brings her right to the forefront of this conversation. And as he does, he communicates to her, this is broken. You got to work on this thing. You're accountable. There are consequences to your decisions. And as Jesus, who has never laid eyeballs on this woman, as this woman who's never seen Jesus in her life, as as he takes the, the darkest parts of her life and just kind of spreads them out on the table like you would fruit at a buffet, she comes up with a very insightful thought. She says to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. (laughs) You know, duh. And and, and, and then the the, the discomfort of where Jesus has taken this conversation, she she steers back to the same old debate again. Goes, Goes to the Messiah thing. Well, I know when Messiah comes, he's gonna help me figure out this thing between my people and your people. When Messiah comes, he's going to help me figure out my life. And then Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, again, this is, this is crazy. 
Up until this point, Jesus hasn't told anybody about him being the Messiah. And you read through the Gospels after this point, all the way to the crucifixion, Jesus goes out of his way to keep tabs on this. It's a very select group of people who Jesus will share with that he's the Messiah. And yet, to this Samaritan woman, in all of her brokenness, Jesus says to her, a Messiah you're looking for? Look no further. Here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. I'm him in the flesh. And as the conversation continues, this woman becomes the very first evangelist for Jesus. She goes back into town, tells everybody in town who will listen to her that Jesus is the Messiah, and a whole town of Samaritan people put their faith in Jesus. She's a first commissioned missionary. She... She does things his disciples haven't even thought about doing yet, let alone begun to do. Like, when you step back from the scene, it's messy. I mean, here's Jesus loving this woman, extending to her courtesy way beyond what she could ever expect to find in her culture or his. Here is Jesus just dealing as directly as you could with the brokenness in her life. Here is Jesus allowing her to do things that his disciples, it isn't even on their radar yet. It's a messy, confusing, at times seemingly inconsistent interaction that he has with this woman as he both is fully loving and fully truthful. And then Jesus looks at you and me and he says, come. Follow me. This is, this is difficult stuff. Now, I, I wish I could say to you, here are the, the, the three simple steps. Do these three things, you got truth and love down. Truth and love just won't be contained like that. So, so let me share with you some principles as we move towards wrapping up. That, that I think are principles that are meant to be lived in consistently over time. And that if we do so, can help us live more fully into truth and love. So here we go. Principle number one, know yourself. And, and by that I simply mean, figure out which of these you tend to naturally be. Now if you've been riding along for the whole series, hopefully you've begun to figure some of this out. But all of us, we tend to have a natural bent one way or the other. Some of us are just naturally love people. It's just how we're wired. Some of us are naturally truth people. Know which one you are. And again, I find that, that oftentimes people are self-aware. They, they have a decent sense of which they are. But I am also always amazed by people's ability to be um, just unaware of themselves or just self-deceiving. It's always fun to me, and I've watched it happen during the course of the series. People who, they're just naturally truth people. Everybody around them knows it, but they want to see themselves as loving. They go, like, oh, I'm a love person. Everybody's looking at them like, no, you're not. You know? And, and, and I've watched people who are like, they, they, they're just love people. They cannot help themselves. It's just, they're bleeding hearts. It's who they are. And, but they want to be truth people, and they'll tell them, I'm a truth person. Everybody's like, no, no, you're not. So even if you think you know what you are, I would encourage you, ask somebody. 
Ask someone who knows you. And if you're a truth person, they're probably afraid to tell you you're a truth person. But ask someone who knows you. Because here's the thing. The people around you, they know which one you are. It's not hard for them to figure it out. The only people who it's difficult to figure this out with are people who have done a really good job at living fully into both truth and love. And again, once you get to know them, you know what their natural bent is. So principle number one, know yourself. Principle number two, live into the other one. Whichever one you are, work on living into the other. If you are naturally a love person, work on living into truth. If you are naturally a truth person, consciously work on living into love. Whichever one you are, work to overcompensate with the other. And I know some of, you, some of the love people are thinking, but, but, but if I work on living into truth, I'm going to lose my love edge. And the truth people are, are going, if I work, if I'm all loving and, and sloppy, I'm going to lose my truth edge. And here's the good news. No, you won't. Because you will naturally do whichever one you have a natural wiring for. You won't even think about it. You will just do it. Something will go down. And the truth people, you're going to find yourself there. You won't even think about it. You will just find yourself there with truth. and It will be in your hand like a hammer. And you'll look down and you're like, I don't even remember picking this up. But as long as I got it, hammer time, right? You will not lose your edge. You will will just naturally go there. And you love people. Something's going to go down. And you won't even think about it. And the next thing you know, you're just emotionally spooning that person. And you're just exuding love and and hope and encouragement. You, You won't be able to help yourself. Whichever you are, you just naturally do that. Don't worry about that. Work on the one you're not. Err in that direction. Overcompensate there. The loving will naturally happen. The truth will naturally happen. Work to do the one you're not. And then finally, learn to live with the tension. Because again, this is messy. Just like it was for Jesus, it'll be messy for us. And, and we, 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 we don't like the tension. And oftentimes we try and resolve the tension by overcompensating in one way or the other. Or we'll try and resolve the tension. We're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to balance this. It's going to be just as much love as it is truth. I'm going to get it even, Stephen. I'm going to make sure that it's nice, neat, and clean, and fair. If you're going to live fully into both, it won't be. At times, it's going to feel inconsistent. At times, it's going to feel unfair. It will be messy. There's a tension that comes with this. It's just difficult. But whoever tells you following Jesus is easy, they're not pointing you to the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus stepped into that tension and lived in the messiness of both truth and love, and he invites us to do the same. The church is referred to as the body of Christ. Part of what that means is that we are meant to be the embodiment of who Jesus is to the world around us. A living, breathing, flesh and blood example of who Jesus is. 
Somebody should be able to read their Bible and go, man, I, I just don't get Jesus here. And then they should be able to walk through the doors of the church and experience what they've read about as they interact with this community. If we are the body of Christ, that means we cannot afford to be loving at the expense of truth. It means we can't afford to be truthful at the expense of love. It means we got to do better than balance love and truth. It means we need to follow Jesus into the tension, into the messy, and live fully into both love and truth. Just stand with me, church. Father, just today, as we have seen Jesus, help us, please, just to follow him in this. Father, help us to know who we are, what our natural bent is, and to work to grow and living in to that other virtue. Help us to be, just, just be okay with the tension and to live fully into that. To follow Jesus here. And Father, just if, if there are any who are here today in the room, if there are anyone, if there's anyone who's just watching online, who finds themselves in the same place where that woman found herself. Just hungry and searching, just with a thirsty soul and realizing that the well I'm going to, it just isn't working. If you're ready for something different, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I need you the broken things of this world, the broken things of my life, they don't satisfy. I need you. Forgive me, please, for thinking that I could find life in something other than a relationship with you. In this moment, I want to surrender all of, surrender all of who I am to you. I want to put my hope and my faith in your life, your death, your resurrection, I want to begin this journey where I follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.